For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Yes. Hey. Whoa, hey. Hey. All over you. Stereo. Uh, someone want to ask me who's on the show this week? Or what? Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week we have Don Van Natta from ESPN, investigative reporter, three-time Pulitzer winner, Don Van Natta. He Don just, Van Natta Jr., right? Uh, I think it's only Don Van Natta Jr. on his byline. I don't think he walks up to you and is like, hello, Don Van Natta Jr. Cool. Um, yeah, he writes for ESPN, and he, uh, along with a colleague, wrote uh, this sort of big definitive uh, TikTok about Ray Rice and the NFL and how all that went down. Uh, it was a pretty interesting conversation. And he, for people who are not um, deeply interested in sports or even, I would say, lightly interested in sports, uh, he's sort of at the center of the triangle. Uh, not personally at the center, but the people who report for ESPN are uh, in a triangle between uh, ESPN and the NFL who have many intertwined uh, business interests and are uh, sort of uh, performing journalism uh, in the void there. So uh, pretty interesting times over there. Yeah, we talked about that a lot, uh, potential conflicts of interest, and uh, he got he got into it. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. He also, he reported previously on like the 9-11 stuff, right? Yeah, he worked for the Times for 15 years, and uh, he wrote about all the sort of Al-Qaeda stuff after 9-11. He was the one who wrote the piece about the phone hacking scandal uh, in London. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he, uh, man stays busy. Well, he had this, yeah, he had this like incredible career, and then uh, left the Times to go to ESPN and write sports stories, and then ended up finding these like big investigations to do again. It's pretty interesting. Um, what kind of sponsors we got this week? Oh, th- thank you for asking, Evan. Uh, one sponsor we have is Bonobos. B O N O B O S dot com. Uh, for anyone who hasn't been on Bonobos, it's a place where you can get everything from chinos, denim, t-shirts, uh, outerwear, jackets, pretty much everything. If you're looking to build a wardrobe, I think it's the place to go. And we have a very special offer code for our listeners, which is long form. You can put an offer code long form at checkout and you get 20% off and you're going to support the show. We have another sponsor. Hey. It's Tiny Letter. Fantastic. You guys know Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. Uh, I am in the process now of judging their residency contest. The applications are uh, stupendous. It's going to be very difficult to pick. You guys will be happy to know 
seeing as how we like rolled the dice to see who was going to get to do that, and then I won the dice roll. Yeah, that I actually get to go to Palm Springs. That's oh nice. fuck off. That's yeah. nice for you. Yeah, so it's like uh, yeah, it's like a free flight, and I get to go and stay in the hotel, and everything's going to be pretty awesome. I like how you told us that on air, so that we can't get as mad at you, since that was definitely not part of the uh, part of the package. It, it was a surprise from the great people at Tiny Letter. That's fantastic. Thanks, Tiny Letter. Uh, a couple other things. I have a couple quick things. First of all, there's a new Atavis story out. It's called The Trials of White Boy Rick. Has an Atavis story ever gotten the kind of rave reviews that this story is getting? Probably not. Not in the Twitter world. I mean, this is this is getting people love the story. Uh, it's by Evan Hughes. It's available at Atavis.com. It's available in our app. You should check it out. And then finally, uh, if you didn't uh, catch the special episode that we put out, you should go contribute to the Matt Power Literary Reporting Award. Uh, they're currently doing a fundraising drive to create uh, a kind of award for one early career journalist to go do the kind of work that Matt did. An endowment. Uh, an endowment. Uh, so go check it out. Uh, it's a good cause. You can go to longform.org slash Matt Power and it will take you there. Cool. Uh, here's Max with Don Van Natta. Hello, Don Van Natta. Hi. Uh, you told me I'm coming to New York because I'm talking to sources. <laughs> yes. That was great. As I, uh, as I, Timing worked out great, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. I assume you can't tell us about what sources you're talking to or what story you're working on. I can't identify the sources. I can say that I'm continuing to work on the NFL, Roger Goodell, Baltimore Ravens story. There's more work to do there. Well, uh, oftentimes we start these things uh, and go back to people's uh, early days, but I want to talk to you about the the Ray Rice stuff and and the NFL and Goodell. Um, you came out with a story. How many days after the the video? Uh, Twelve days, I think. And it has become this sort of uh, definitive article about the Ray Rice scandal and Goodell. When did you start working on it? Probably a day after the video came out. Um, right away, we decided we wanted to do a deep dive narrative TikTok look at everything that occurred from the moment of the punch in the elevator to the moment the second TMZ video came out and the handling of it by the NFL, how the Ravens handled it, and just, you know, immerse ourselves in the facts as many as we could find out and tell people as quickly as we could. Who's we in that case? We is the network. Uh, the mandate was from on high to do the best job we could uh, as comprehensively as we could. And I teamed up uh, with Kevin Van Valkenburg, uh, a terrific uh, senior writer at, at the magazine and at ESPN.com. And he's based in Baltimore. He covered the Ravens um, for the Baltimore Sun not too many years back. And so he was a very good person to team up with. That's and, actually something I want to make sure we talk about is it, uh, a lot of the sort of bigger stories you've done have been uh, co-bylined and collaborative projects. And I'm interested in how you tackle something like this with a team. But um, so this came down, comes down from on high. Some Someone uh, way up at ESPN says, uh, we're going to put our investigative eye on this. Well, actually, the way it happened was the day the video came out, I had a conversation with a couple of my editors in Bristol. And I said, we've got to look at this really closely. And we got to get started on it right away. And they quickly agreed. But I think there was a mandate all the way up the line, that we wanted to cover the story aggressively, uh, fairly, and and I think that's what we did. So it's the day after this video breaks. It's leading every news program. It's all over the internet. It's the only story in the country, or uh, one of the only stories in the country. Uh, how do you start trying to do 
this sort of definitive deep dive? Where where do you start with, when something is already that pervasive? You try to speak to as many people as you can who have firsthand knowledge of what happened. And um, it wasn't easy in this particular case because a lot of those people were not motivated to talk. Um, we wanted to talk to people in the league, wanted to talk to people with the Ravens, uh, talk to people with the union, uh, and people around Ray Rice. And uh, we just set out, what you do is you cast as wide a net as possible and try to speak to as many people as possible. And as I said, I had a, a partner on the project. Kevin uh, did a fabulous job, and we just started digging. And in the course of the reporting, just within a couple of days, we found out that what Roger Goodell said um, during his interview with CBS with Nora O'Donnell when he said that Ray Rice gave an ambiguous account on June 16th, we had some sources telling us that, uh, well, Ray Rice actually told the truth of what happened in the elevator. So we broke off, and I did a story just a, a few days after, in the course of doing this TikTok, just about that. We had four sources saying Ray Rice told the truth to Roger Goodell. He said he hit Janae Palmer and knocked her out, knocked her unconscious, uh, which contradicted um, head-on something Roger Goodell had said on national television. When you decide to tackle a project like that, how do you so you just identified a couple of different groups of people? Like, where do you start? Are there people? Are there sources you have already that that's where you go to first? Yes, you. I have. I have. I had sources um, that I had developed in doing a Roger Goodell profile yeah. for the magazine, which um, we should talk about too in early uh, 2013, which I worked uh, five months on. So I had a pool of folks right away that I could call immediately or email, and I did that. But we identified many other people that um, I had not spoken with before. Uh, or that Kevin had not spoken with before. And we ran at those two, and, and we were able to get some of those folks to speak to us as well. And the people who aren't motivated to talk, as you said, how do you get them to open up? That's a great question. Uh, you know, everybody who speaks to a journalist has a motive. Um, oftentimes the motives are impure. Uh, sometimes they are purer than others where it's the truth. They just want the truth out. What I try to do is I, I'm lucky that I am able to go and see people. Oftentimes, if you can go look somebody in the eye, have a beer with them, have a cup of coffee. But in this particular case, a lot of it was phone work. Um, I didn't travel on the story. I stayed in Miami and reported it. And so a lot of it is just, you know, your reputation helps. Um, you call folks. You, you're, you have to be persistent. On a number of cases in this particular story, persistence paid. We just kept running at folks. Um, Sometimes you have to go around them, uh, go to people who know them. I, I, there were two particular people here that I was able to get to speak with me because I went to people that they knew. One source in particular had several people sort of vouch for me. One I just happened to know. And you're, I mean, you're asking those people to vouch for you. You just, you just ask and say, look, can you do me a favor? Can you go to this person? He's not returning my calls. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that in a, in a couple of instances that worked. It doesn't always work. Yeah, I mean, uh, how, what, like, what's your batting average there? It's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty, the batting average is pretty good, uh, but it doesn't always work. And when it doesn't, you just have to come up with other ways of getting it. Um, Serge Kovaleski is a great journalist at the New York Times, a former colleague of mine. And he had a, he had a great label for this. It is it, sort of chaos theory of journalism, of reporting. You, you call everybody. You, mm -hmm. you just, and, and when you do that, people all sort of talk. They hear that you're doing it. Um, if you have a reputation of kind of getting to the truth in past stories, some people will say, well, 
you know, I, I got to talk to them. I got to say something. You're going to get there anyway. And they, they may get there anyway. Let's and, and oftentimes reconnaissance is done. People want to talk to you just to find out what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you get them on the phone that way. I mean, there's all sorts of ways it works. But in this particular case, we were fortunate. Pretty quickly, we were able to establish um, some key facts that, that, that were the sort of bedrock for the story. It's interesting, too, because I hadn't realized that you started it after the video came out. I mean, at that point, people, anyone connected to that story must have been in in an incredibly emotional state. Like people, if anyone was going to talk, that's when they were going to talk before the video came out. Even though it was a topic of conversation, it was nothing like what it was once the video hit. Right. Uh, no, that, that's very instinctive of you to, to, to say that. Early on, there were several uh, people, key people, that we were able to uh, get to agree to speak to us and speak to us throughout the reporting. Uh, it was 11 days from uh, when we really started reporting in earnest to the time when the story was published online. Must take some patience to oh, wait absolutely. that long with everyone uh out it, there kind of jabbering about it. It, it does, but it, but as I said, in this particular case, there was a couple stories that we landed while we were doing it. Um, so that was good. We were able to break off things that we felt were competitive, like mm-hmm. that story I mentioned yeah. with the four sources. But uh, but yeah, it does. It takes patience. This kind of work is, is can be very, very tough. You go down a lot of blind alleys. Uh, it can be frustrating at times. Um, and you have to have bosses who also have patience um, and allow you to sometimes, as you say, that batting average go, you know, go down on strikes. Did you try talking to Ray Rice? We did. Uh, he did not want to talk to us. Where in the process did you try and make that ask? Uh, on this particular story, it was pretty early in the in the in the in the process, and then circled back again toward the end. But uh, but his folks just said he wasn't ready to say anything right now, and and obviously he was determining whether or not he was going to file an appeal, which he ended up doing. Um, you know, he was getting all sorts of advice from from different people about what steps to take after the. You know, contract with the Baltimore Ravens was right. was terminated, and the and the NFL suspended him indefinitely. But you were able to get a bunch of his friends. Yes, we were, and we were able to get some of those friends on the record, um, which was critical, I think. Uh, in this kind of a story, so much of it was anonymous sources. Uh, you know, we talked to more than twenty people, but the fact that we got some of Ray Rice's closest friends on the record, I think, really made a big difference. Um, not just for the information that they gave us, which was so critical about the texts that Steve Bishotti, the owner of the Ravens, sent to Ray Rice uh, the day after the video came out and the contract was terminated, but uh, but also just having on the record sources uh, on a story like that really just helps overall, the overall credibility, I think, with readers. It's interesting to hear you talk about the credibility of the story because I imagine when you're working on a story like that, uh, that you know is going to get uh, parsed you know is going to get critiqued, is quite damning for several of the people involved uh, who happen to be very powerful, very wealthy people, uh, that, you know, the kitchen sink is going to get thrown at you. How how much is that in your head while you're working on the story? Like, how much are you thinking about this story is going to get attacked, it's going to get poked, the tires are going to get kicked, everything that we put out there is going to get vetted? Um, how, how much is that in your mind as you're working on the story? It's in my mind on every story. Uh, it really is. Every story I do, the nature of the kind of work I do as an investigative reporter, every story you do is going to get attacked and the tires are going to get kicked and it's going to get uh, scrutinized uh, down to every phrase and down to the letter. Uh, so I didn't do anything differently in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you have to have multiple sources for key facts um, on this type of story or any type of investigative story. You do, and, and we set out to get that, and we got it. And, and as I said, when Steve Bishotti attacked the story and put out that 15-point rebuttal, uh, I said it on Outside the Lines with Bob Lee immediately after the press conference. He made some assumptions about our sources that just weren't right. Mm-hmm. He, he was incorrect in thinking that it, the entire story came from Ray Rice's camp. You know, he made the point at the press conference, he said that our sources were uh, paid for, I think he said most sources were paid for by Ray Rice. Well, most of our sources were not. Uh, some of our sources were paid by Steve Bishotti. Uh, they're people that worked for the Ravens. Um, they're in the building. And and so uh, I just think he made some assumptions about motives, and, and I don't blame him. I understand why he did that. There were certainly some things that were in the story that appeared to come from that camp, uh, but to sort of paint it with that brush, I think was uh, overly simplistic. I'm sure you do that with every story, but there was parsing of this one on a level that I hadn't seen in previous stuff. Certainly not the ESPN stuff you've done. It might have been I mean, you've covered hugely sensitive things for the Times in the past, but uh, this story, like there was there was one post I was looking back before we talked and. Deadspin was going super hard on this story. They were posting the corrections as they were done online. There was like a before and after thing. Um, And one of the things that they pushed on pretty hard that picked up in a lot of other places were those text messages that Mm -hmm. you just referred to, which in the piece are sort of set off and italicized, but are actually paraphrases. Right. And uh, but the meaning of the texts when they were released by the Ravens were not different from Mm -hmm. the paraphrases we had. We didn't have the texts in the initial version of the story that was published. We said we didn't have the actual texts themselves. We had them described to us by Ray Rice's friends. I think we said that in the story. The the way it was formatted in, in sort of setting it off in italics, some readers, I think probably it's fair to say a majority of readers, came to the conclusion that they were actual texts. And um, we clarified that. Yeah. Uh, I regret that we did that. Um, I think if I had to do it over again, we wouldn't have done that. But th- but the key part here is that the meaning didn't change. Um, you know, Steve Bishotti sent a text to Ray Rice saying, there's a job for you down the road. Um, the actual language, we just, we didn't have the text from Ray Rice. He wasn't a source on the story, as I said. Uh, and uh, And the Ravens didn't help us with that either. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess the formatting seemed regrettable in hindsight. I'm, I'm sort of happy to hear you say that. Uh, but at the same time, it must be nice when people start attacking your stuff like that to be like, uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm just going to go on ESPN and defend the story. Yeah, that was something that I'd never done before. Uh, I, I never had the opportunity to go on live television uh, within minutes of somebody attacking my story at a press conference and, and giving a rebuttal. Um, it was a pretty extraordinary opportunity, I have to say, and, and kind of daunting. Uh, and it wasn't just right after the press conference. I then went outside the lines for another 15 minutes of live television. I went on SportsCenter. I did a lot of interviews that night all over ESPN's radio networks. Um, Do you like becoming the story? I, you know, I didn't like it when I was at the Times. It's part of my portfolio at ESPN, just the nature of the cross-platform work I now do. And I do TV pieces that are companion pieces to the magazine stories I write now. So it's just, it's part of the portfolio. Um, It's taken some getting used to, Mm -hmm. um, definitely. I've had stories attacked when I was at the Times by the White House, by the CIA, never had a chance to immediately (laughs) go on national television and give my side. So, uh, you know, as I I said to a friend, it's, it's not a bad day when you do a story that you're really proud of and the people that you write about 
attack it, but you know that the attacks that they're making are all on the margins. If you really look closely at what Steve Bishotti said at that press conference, nearly all of what we reported was accurate. He was disputing dates. Mm. He was disputing lots of things on the margins. Now, he said that they didn't push for leniency, but I would argue just the fact that Ozzie Newsom and Dick Cass, the general manager of the Ravens and the team president, were in the room with Ray and Janae Rice when they made their pitch to Roger Goodell, uh, that's just by their presence uh, pushing for leniency because that was why they were there. They were trying to get uh, the least amount of punishment possible. Right. And he didn't come out and say, uh, we tried to get the videotape and he didn't come out. Right. He didn't he, come out and say, we didn't know what happened in the elevator. He put out He put out a letter to all of the ticket holders, Steve Bishotti did a week earlier, with many of the facts that we found out in our reporting that were not there that he then acknowledged in the 15-point rebuttal, uh, as well as during the press conference. So that's a pretty good day when that happens. Um, and then you have a chance to, you know, stand the stuff up. Uh, as I said, on national television, that's a, it was a great opportunity. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Bonobos. If you are anything like me, you want clothes that fit right and look good, but you do not want to deal with the hassles of actually going shopping, uh, that is why Bonobos exists. They make everything from perfect-fitting chinos and denim to shirts and world-class hats and outerwear options. I have a Bonobos jacket. It fits great. Uh, if you go to Bonobos today, you can save on your first order by using the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 20% off that first order. Shipping is always free both ways. You can return anything if you don't love it. No questions asked. It's super easy. So go to Bonobos.com. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com because you deserve to look your best, and these guys will help you do just that. Thanks for uh, sponsoring the show, Bonobos, and let's get back to Don. So part of the reason that you have an opportunity to uh, to go on national television is that you work for the largest player in sports, probably. So here's this moment, right? You've taken on the NFL. Uh, you've written this quite damning piece uh, that uh, basically, it basically says they're lying. It's, it's pretty hard to read your article and not come away with the belief uh, that Roger Goodell and the front office of the NFL uh, is not being honest with fans. Very, very difficult to come away with. We that. don't use those terms, but, uh, but a reasonable, a reader reading it could come to that conclusion. That, okay, that's a fairer way to say it. Yeah. I, I'm a reader who, who read it and I came to that conclusion. Okay. And at the same time, uh, the folks paying your check and... Uh, putting it on the story and then putting it on TV to defend it um, are also going to show a game on that Monday night and are going to cover the league, are partners with the league, uh, pay the league many billions of dollars every year. How hard is it to navigate that conflict? It hasn't been that hard. I, I wish I could say it's been hard, but it hasn't been. Um, when I was at the New York Times and I got a call from ESPN to come to Bristol with an opportunity to work for them and to do investigative reporting for ESPN, I was concerned about whether I would be able to do what I did at the Times for ESPN with all of the business relationships they have. And I was assured by the top executives in the company that they would allow me to do what I did at the Times. And they have on every story. They have not once put the brakes on something I did, said, slow down, don't go there. This could compromise uh, our relationship with the NFL or with any other business partner. Uh, and on this particular story, you know, as I said, they, they 
from the very beginning, said, just go find the truth. You know, we have a unit inside the network, the outside the lines unit of terrific investigative and enterprise reporters. And you look at the body of work, I mean, the stuff that the Fainaru brothers have done on concussions, the groundbreaking work that they've done, uh, and many of my other colleagues run up against this issue every day. And, and we're never told not to do something. And right now I'm continuing to report the story. Uh, nobody has told me to slow down or don't go there. It wouldn't be good for business. It's just those conversations are, are not had. And, and I know the public has a hard time sort of grasping that. It's sort of like, well, how do you on the one hand have this business relationship and on the other hand do the journalism? But we've been able to do it. And you know, I don't think they would have hired me uh, or Steve Fainaru or uh, – other folks in the unit, if they didn't want us to to do the kind of work that we've done throughout our careers. And I guess the question is, do you ever worry, or is it anywhere in your head, that you're there to um, help buy legitimacy for the other stuff? No, I, I don't worry about it. I mean, my eyes are open. I realize that the value I bring to the company is to do the kind of journalism that they want, that they appreciate. But I, I, I really don't worry about it. I don't worry that, wow, if I, you know, if I do a story that's really tough here, what's going to happen? Um, because I was hired to do the kind of work that I'm, that I'm doing. So it's not a concern. Um, I have two more questions about this, and then we can talk about other more journalism nerdy things. But I'm interested. It's like it's not very often you get to talk to someone about this uh, ESPN stuff, which, you know, like I read all this, all this stuff, and uh, it's a pretty constant sort of source of – uh, thing one one is the uh, the frontline thing, the concussion special on frontline, which seems like the one time where maybe ESPN did kill something that the NFL was upset about. I mean, the the, the Times covered that pretty extensively. Yeah, that was a year ago. Uh, the Fainaru brothers, uh, as a as a sort of companion to their book called League of Denial, worked on a documentary uh, for PBS Frontline. Uh, ESPN was a sponsor of it sort of branded it, uh, and then a decision was made to withdraw the branding just on the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, the network was still fully supportive of the Fainter's work. They continued to do all sorts of aggressive reporting, uh, really groundbreaking reporting throughout the year. And then when their book came out, uh, I actually wrote a news story uh, about the highlights, mm-hmm. uh, the news highlights that were in the book that was on the top of ESPN.com. They were on Outside the Lines. So it wasn't as if the network sort of turned its back entirely on any of the work. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually just interested in how it works. Like, did you get a heads up that that was going to happen? Like, it, it, the way that you're presenting is like, these, there are these kind of separate worlds. And I just wonder if that was a moment where they touched. I didn't personally get a heads up about it. I was, I was busy on a story about Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King and on deadline. And uh, it wasn't as if somebody whispered in my ear that this was going to happen. Um, I, I think I found out about it very, very late in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was disappointing. But I don't think it's the norm. It's the only time it's happened. And, uh, uh, you know, and a year later, maybe the biggest scandal to ever face the NFL and ESPN of all of the business partners and actually arguably of any journalism outlet, including the New York Times, you know, we have been at the forefront of the reporting. Yeah, that's a strong defense. I'm I'm really just trying to figure out how it is for you. Like, um, I, I don't, it doesn't feel nef- like there's some huge nefarious plot. It's just it's murky and tricky, uh, and I think people are interested in it. So I'm going to ask you two more questions, and then we'll stop, and we can talk about something else. The first one is, during that Goodell press conference uh, that 
really rough Goodell press conference, uh, Judy Batista, former colleague of yours at the Times, yep. stands up and asks her, asks him like a quite difficult question. Uh, but Judy Batista is no longer at the Times. She's at the NFL Network. And it was quite clearly like this is one of those moments where it felt like things were, were you know, coming to a head in a weird in a weird way. It was like Goodell signs her checks like the, he, he she is employed by him and is up there asking him hard questions and she's doing her job. Uh, but it felt weird, just felt weird to, to watch to me. You know, it felt uh, tricky. Um, and I, so I guess how is this different than that? Or do you think that's also just kind of like the way the world is now? I don't think it's exactly the same. I think the I think the relationship that Judy Batista has with the NFL is closer than the one that I have working for ESPN. It is similar, and um, you know, look, the, the the bottom line here is we're in sort of uncharted water when it comes to this particular story. And since I started, I mean, my mandate, the mandate for Steve Fainaru and for many of my other colleagues, is to do great journalism. Uh, you know, uh, that's what. That's what fans want, and uh, that's what my bosses want. And that's what they have allowed us to do, and we're going to continue to do it. One more question, which is uh, Bill Simmons recently suspended for three weeks uh, for commenting about the NFL and uh, Goodell on the podcast, referenced your article uh, as part of um, the sort of monologue that got him suspended. Uh, What do you think of that? Well, I think it's unfortunate that it happened. Uh, Bill probably got in a lot more trouble for his comments about sort of daring his bosses to do something about it uh, than he did uh, what he said about Goodell. But what he said about Goodell also is is something that, you know, we have not yet proven. Um, he, he took away uh, some things from that story, as some readers did, but probably went too far. And uh, we don't know yet uh, definitively whether Roger Goodell lied or not. But, uh, but I do think it's a, it's a question that will be answered before long. Well, it's a good thing that you're in New York talking to sources. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get there. I want to ask you about some other ESPN stories. Can we okay. talk about some other stories? Great, yes. That Jerry Jones story, the profile of Jerry Jones. Um, well, just walk us through that. Like, For as intense and uh, damning as the Ray Rice story was, uh, and you also wrote a profile of Goodell that we talked about like 18 months ago that was quite serious. It was the the tone of that story. It was a you were really seemed to be working hard to give a tough, like honest read of this guy that hadn't really been done before, um, and I think that's how it was received. That story got a, a ton of attention when it came out. The Goodell story. Um, this Jerry Jones profile is <laughs> if those are that, then this is just fun. It's like uh, the two of you sitting around like drinking what sounds like too much really expensive scotch. <laughs> Yes. Uh, this was definitely fun. Uh, my friend Scott Price at Sports Illustrated, he has a great line. Uh, his writerly advice on stories like this is he just says, people like fun, just like that. And they do. And that's what this piece was. Uh, you know, I set out to do what I hope stands up as sort of the comprehensive story about Jerry Jones, where you really feel you get to know him. Mm-hmm. Why Jerry Jones? Well, he's the arguably the most famous and infamous Uh, owner in American pro sports. Uh, He is in some ways almost a caricature of himself. And a lot of younger fans, I think, just see him as this sort of glowering older guy in his suite, you know, looking down at the field, often really angry because the Cowboys are are blowing a game in the fourth quarter on a late Tony Romo interception. And he's had such wide-ranging influence on the NFL uh, as a visionary 
Uh, it's been 25 years since you bought the team. I didn't feel satisfied just as a reader in having read a lot about Jerry Jones, and there have been you know, millions of words written about him, that I ever really got a sense of him. And so the thought was to, to do that, to try to really capture the real Jerry Jones. And the only way to do that, obviously, is with a lot of time, and, and I was lucky that he gave me that over the summer. Was that one of those stories that had been like kicking around your head for a long time? It was, and it was also uh, one that several of the more senior folks at the network uh, had wanted me to do for some time. And we finally you know, got the opportunity to do it earlier this year. And as I say in the story, uh, it didn't look as if I was going to get any access at all. I had no access to Roger Goodell, by the way, right. uh, you know, a, a year and a half earlier. Uh, five times tried to get Goodell to talk with me and he turned me down each time. I felt pretty certain, though, because this wasn't just going to be a magazine piece, it was going to be a television piece that we had to have Jerry Jones cooperate. But it didn't appear that he was going to until I went to the spring league meetings in Atlanta. Yeah, and just well, I love this crashed story. it. I feel like there's this great lesson. It's like you know, here's ESPN's like top investigative guy. You're going through all the normal PR channels, talking to the Cowboys PR people, asking to do this piece. They're brushing you off and brushing you off, and uh, sometimes you got to just crash a party show up yeah yeah you got to crash a party that's exactly a good way of putting it and uh and it was a party for one that i ended up crashing you know jerry jones uh it still boggles my mind that at the end of a nfl league meeting where there are 32 owners there the commissioner is there all these league executives it breaks up and 30 minutes later jones is alone (laughs) drinking his johnny walker blue in the bar at the ritz carlton in atlanta uh but lucky for me he was because it was easier to you know go up to him and shake his hand introduce myself tell him what i was doing and when he uh, invited me to sit down and have a drink with him uh that was a probably the one of the best moments of my career because i knew very quickly after that as i think probably as that first sip of that johnny walker blue yeah that first bit of uh whiskey hit my stomach uh i knew that i was in because we just we just clicked and then i was i spent three and a half hours with him uh we we talked about all sorts of stuff the branding of the cowboys uh you know him missing uh johnny manzel and how mad he was at his son steven uh you got that note from a woman at the bar in the middle of it but it, but it, but by the end he just said this is going to be fun and he and he really did go all in he, he committed to doing it and he really did i i spent so much time with him this summer an extraordinary amount of time and was it always you pushing for more time was it or was he saying like don come on i'm getting on the plane it was. I didn't have to push hard. I I kept asking, but every time I asked, the answer was yes. Um, yeah, the plane. We took a plane ride from Dallas to Fayetteville, Arkansas, for an event for his old college coach. That was a great day. That was an extraordinarily great day because uh, that was the real the first day after um, you know we we met in Atlanta, um, and we spent a lot of time talking uh, about everything, but. But it was it was clear then that because he he had said to me uh, during that afternoon, he says, oh, come tomorrow night, the the George Strait concert, come to my suite, you'll be our guests. And it was clear there was going to be a lot of time with him. And we also talked on the phone uh, an extraordinary amount of time. Do you think he just liked you a lot or was he lonely? I I think I think we definitely hit it off. Um, uh, There's no question about that. But, yeah, I sensed a little bit of loneliness to him. I really did. Uh, I mean, he's sitting there drinking, <laughs> drinking alone at the bar and hangs out for, with you for three and a half hours. Yeah. He's, he's a, and he's, you know, he's in a family business. He, you know, his, uh, his two sons and his daughter are top executives with the Cowboys. And I saw a lot of them this summer as well, but I never really saw them hanging around together. They have, they have a, almost an all business sort of relationship. And, um, you know, he, every single time, almost every single time I was with him, uh, he would say to me, are you still working? 
And I knew that was his way of inviting me to join him for a drink. Uh, <laughs> and a couple times it was still, you know, daylight hours. So uh, uh, and your but, answer every time was, no, I'm no longer working. That's right. I said, well, I said, well, no, I, I, my answer every time was, are you having one? And I realized that's maybe the dumbest question I asked him of all the <laughs> questions I asked him because he always was. And so I would always join him. And uh uh, I had to laugh when the story came out. He told uh, a radio station in Dallas that he was surprised there was so much Johnny Walker Blue in the story, but he shouldn't have been because there was a lot of Johnny Walker Blue <laughs> in our time together. I mean, yeah, we drank lots inaccurate. of them. That's right, we drank lots of them, and they were almost always doubles as well. So it was a boozy summer. Were there questions that, as you guys were having your you know summer romance, were there questions <laughs> that like you waited? To ask, were there were there no. uh, were there big burning things you wanted to know? No, there were a lot of burning things I wanted to know, but a lot of it um, I asked him the first the first session in Atlanta. Uh, I wanted to know about Jimmy Johnson. I wanted to ask him about the draft. I wanted to ask him about the team's mediocrity. All all of the sort of main themes of the piece were on the table from the very beginning because I didn't I didn't want him to feel as if I was you know laying in wait. Uh, you know, two or three um, sessions in to ask him the tough stuff. Uh, I put the cards on the table. And, I, and that's my style usually yeah. um, on these kinds of stories. I, I'm really up, up front. I think it. Um, you, re- you want whoever you talk with to trust you um, from the beginning. And, and I do think he did. Um, and, and he told me just two days before the piece came out that he was very satisfied with the process and uh, called me a straight shooter. And, uh, you know, I heard through the grapevine that he was generally pleased with the story. I don't think he liked every single line in it, but he was generally pleased. You didn't talk pleased. to him afterwards? I have not spoken with him since the story came out, but I've heard uh, from a number of people who he's talked with about the story that he was generally pleased with it. He didn't like every line. He thought... Uh, some of it was uh, w- was particularly tough uh, about the story, but but overall he was uh, he was pleased. Felt it was fair. How much does your uh, backlist, your like resume, play in in that kind of thing? Like when you approach someone, you introduce yourself. When you're making that pitch to the Cowboys PR, are you literally like showing them clips? So like this is the kind of work that I do. No, not usually. Uh, I mean, anybody can Google anybody, and that always happens. Um, in this particular case, though. Uh, Jones did ask me after saying he would cooperate and he would, you know, work with me on this story in Atlanta. He did say to me that he wanted me to send my bio to his executive assistant um, along with a few clips, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I heard officially a couple of days later after I had done that. Like that he, would that you he, pass your own background test? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think he just he wanted to do his homework and do his due diligence. And uh, I think it helps a little bit. Sometimes I will use that to be really honest. I will say, you know, I was at the New York Times for 16 years. I've written several books. Um, you know, you use as a journalist, you use every uh, tool you can to try to get people to cooperate with you. Uh, if I know somebody is a golfer, for instance, I'll mention my my first book about presidential golf. Uh, you know, in fact, I actually think Jones and I spoke about that briefly about because we ta- we started we talked a little bit about Bill Clinton, and so mm-hmm. I mentioned uh, the the Clinton chapter in, in my book first off. The yeah, tea. you played golf with Clinton. Yes, yes, and so I mentioned that to Jones actually as we were sipping our Johnny Walker Blue in Atlanta. Um, so yeah, you. I hope it helps, um, but sometimes it hurts. You know, if somebody has something to hide and they don't want to talk to you, and they look up your credentials and they say, "Okay, this guy is," you know, uh, is there an example example you're thinking of? One doesn't come to mind immediately, but there has certainly been times when I have sensed that um, because of my background as an investigative reporter, that people are more leery to speak with me. I think it actually happened with Goodell. To be honest, um, I think that Goodell did not know me. Uh, he knew my credentials, 
And the sense I got from talking to people around him is he, you know, I was not somebody that he felt he wanted to open up to, to do an investigative profile on. He had no interest in that. Around the time that that profile came out, he did a couple of pretty high profile interviews and he did. He, in fact, with Judy Batista, he did a uh, holidays uh, in December of 2012. He did a sort of Christmas time interview with Judy. He talked to Peter King at length um, around the time I was doing that. He did a Reddit interview. I, you know, he actually, <laughs> he actually. That, that's the thing. I, you know, he did he did a town hall mm-hmm. uh, session that was on Sirius Satellite Radio. So yeah, he was he was out there, and it was and it was frustrating because this wasn't just sort of this deep investigative profile for ESPN uh, in the magazine, but it was also a television piece. We mm-hmm. ended up doing a you know a 14-minute television piece as well. And they knew that. They all knew it in the league office. And as I say, I made five runs at them, five attempts, five invitations were extended, and all five were turned down. So Roger Goodell has a cold is, is basically what happens <laughs> with that story. But it was amazing reading back, reading it back this week. You know, I was just going through your stuff before we talked. And, and the huge issues in that story are concussions and, and player uh, health. But um, like another really controversial thing is like the 18-game season. Uh, that's a that's a real focal point of that story, and it it felt like uh, it was just really re- interesting to go back and reread that, given the current situation he's in, and how dramatically the stakes have changed. Like he was in hot water, then he was in some a tricky place then, and uh, it just got so much worse, and the stakes have gotten so much higher, and the lights are so much brighter. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm really proud about that story is that. I think that it was prescient in a lot of ways. Um, he had a credibility gap then um, on a number of these issues that you just described with the players, with the union. And he wasn't acknowledging it. And he, and he was not, uh, uh, stubbornly right. not acknowledging it. I mean, sort of trying to, but 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 not really. And so a lot of those issues, um, they're really deep-seated issues um, yeah. that we're now seeing play out. Um, you know, are, are in that piece, and also even the way the NFL manages the media and its and its broadcast partners. There's several paragraphs that go into some detail, even about that and about Goodell's. I, I, I use the the term hypersensitivity. Uh, there's no question he is. Yeah. Um, I mean, he he doesn't think he is, and and I heard through the grapevine that he hated the story. Really? Just absolutely despised it, and I and I just thought, well, uh, I, I don't know how you can dispute being hypersensitive if you're if you're if you're screaming about how unfair the story was. The the sort of flip side of being hypersensitive is being a perfectionist, not being able to admit mistakes. Uh, how, how do you think someone who struggles with that sort of that fundamental humanness gets to run a multi billion dollar corporation? That's a good question. He does struggle with it. Uh, he's got uh, very forgiving bosses uh, who judge him based on how much mo- more money he makes them. And by that standard, um, he has done an incredible job. Um, now, by the standard of being a politician, and he's after all a senator's son, um, and being in tune with the needs of conflicting constituencies, he's not as good at that. And uh, and we've seen that. Uh, I think he I think he's finally beginning to get it. Um, or at least I'd like to hope so. What What's um, your sign of that? You know, there were moments in the press conference, and and I thought the press conference. You know, it, it just doesn't play to 
Roger Goodell's strengths. It's just he, you know, he came across as robotic and scripted. Someone should um, have gotten him out there way earlier. Right. And, and uh, no doubt. And, uh, but he is vowing to change the player discipline system, which has been a big point of contention with the players and with coaches and with the union from the very beginning. You know, he came in in 2006 really trying to set himself apart from his predecessor, Paul Tagliabue, whose reputation was being way too close to Gene Upshaw, the head of the union. Uh, and so what often happens in life, you just try to set yourself apart from your predecessor. Mm-hmm. And so he became the tough sheriff in town. But unfortunately, I think Goodell's real vulnerability here is fairness and whether he plays favorites, because there are a core group of owners, management council, if you will, uh, who really got him his job. And that's Robert Kraft of the Patriots, John Mara of the Giants, Jerry Jones of the Cowboys, Art Rooney II of the Steelers, Jerry Richardson of the Panthers. Has Goodell treated them more favorably than he has other owners? And uh, there was an interesting anonymous source in Peter King's uh, column on Monday where an owner said, if Goodell plays favorites, that's not going to sit well. And so one of the things that I'm interested in and curious about is whether that really is the case. Um, If you read my Goodell profile closely, you'll see some of that. For instance, with the Patriots on Spygate. I'm a Patriots fan. Oh, you are? Okay. We're already pretty low. I don't know if we need to go too deep into <laughs> All right. Spygate. Well, we, don't, we don't have to go too deep into it, but I just want to make the point that on Spygate, you, you know, that was within a year of Goodell getting his job. Right. That scandal happened. And Kraft was, you know, one of his angels to get that job. Uh, suddenly, he's in the crosshairs of this huge scandal that affects the credibility of the games that are played, raises questions about the veracity of Super Bowl titles. I mean, it really goes to the heart of the game's uh, ability to sell itself as a fair game to the public. And what does Goodell do? He, in some people's view, slaps Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick on the wrist. Um, and then he burns all the videotapes within days and gets all the, owner, all the other owners to sign off on it. Now, you can see that that's not necessarily the hardest thing to do since the credibility of the games were actually in question. It would have been bad for business if they got out. But it's curious. In that case, there are videos and Roger Goodell burns them. <laughs> right. Gets all <laughs> in, of them and burns and them. And burns them. In Bounty Gate, which he hammers the New Orleans Saints um, far harder than he hammered the New England Patriots. He's not close to the owner or the coach in that particular case, incidentally. Uh, the video, there's a video there that actually he misinterprets and says there's a player on the video during the uh, NFC Championship game against the Vikings, a guy named Anthony Hargrove, a defensive lineman for the Saints, who the league and Roger Goodell quotes saying, Bobby, give me my money. And they say it's Anthony Hargrove. It wasn't Anthony Hargrove. And it basically ruined Hargrove's career. It made him the villain of the scandal. So in that case, there's a video that they misinterpret. And then fast forward to the Ray Rice there's a video that they don't try very hard to get. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way the league has handled these disciplinary issues, very high-profile ones, and the way Roger Goodell in particular handles them, it's fair game for journalists to, to raise questions about whether it truly is a level playing field or whether favorites, he plays favorites with certain owners. Do you think he's going to survive this? I don't know. Uh, it really is going to depend on the sponsors. Uh, it really just depends on the money. If there is suddenly a uh, Goodell discount 
um, in negotiations. And, you know, just this week we saw DirecTV re-up for eight years at $1.5 billion at a 50% increase uh, per year. It doesn't appear to be a Goodell discount there. That's that's a pretty big jump. But on other negotiations and if sponsors decide that uh, the league is, is hurting their reputations, um, that would be the only set of circumstances I could envision that, that he would not be able to survive because he has, he doesn't have a, a, a sort of board of directors um, in the sense that at a public company or, or a sort of a group that looks at whether or not the fiduciary duty of the NFL is being met by decisions that Roger Goodell is making. He's got um, this management council and most of the people on the management council love the job he's been doing. Hitting that, his uh, 2025 goal or whatever it is. That for... The 2025 goal for, right, for 27, I think it's $25 billion by 2027. Uh, and they're well on the way to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously the, the values of the franchises continue to spiral every year. We got back on the NFL stuff. Yeah, we did. <laughs> but I got more stories to ask you about. I want to talk about Bobby Riggs. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty fun story. Oh my gosh, super fun. Can you give like the short spiel for people maybe who haven't read it? The story is about uh, a man named Hal Shaw, who uh, is a 79-year-old Tampa former golf pro who 40 years ago overheard some of the most notorious mobsters in America at a golf shop in Tampa describe this proposal that had been brought to them by Bobby Riggs to throw the battle of the sexes against Billie Jean King. He had never described it uh, publicly before to anybody, even members of his own family and his wife, this man, Hal Shaw, he told us. Why did he tell you? I met him through my third book about Babe Diedrichson called Wonder Girl. Uh, He knew Babe and uh, George Zaharias um, in Tampa very well back in the 50s. And when he decided to tell the story, because he knew me and trusted me, a friend of his reached out and said he was ready to tell this story. Uh, We decided to just investigate it at first and, and really just took what he said as a tip. And the more I dug into it, the more evidence I found pointing to the possibility, the very real possibility that in fact Bobby Riggs did purposely throw the match. Can you walk us through your reporting process there? Like you get this tip from a guy who says, uh, I've got a secret thing I've been uh, keeping to myself for 40 years. I'm finally ready to tell it. What do you What do you do with that? Well, the first thing you do is you spend time with him, which I did. I went up to Tampa and I spent um, a couple of days with him and just had him tell it over and over again to be sure that I felt he was telling the truth. That it, you know there was a consistency to his account, and there was. And then you, uh, just as we did on the Ray Rice story, you just put out as wide a net as possible and try to talk to as many people as you can who have any knowledge at all about the circumstances of the match. So uh, I reached out to Lorne Kuhl, who is Bobby Riggs's best friend and the executor of his estate. Uh, Larry Riggs, Bobby Riggs' son, I talked with him. I went to Wimbledon. This was one of the great privileges of all time. I went to Wimbledon for a week just to kind of speak to the old guard tennis folks. Didn't have to write a single story, just hung around Wimbledon drinking pints with, you know, Donald Dell, this agent, uh, Stan Smith, the great uh, tennis legend, um, Chrissy Everett. and uh, and what was amazing is that very quickly in the reporting, we kept hearing from people saying, "Oh yeah, there was always this there was always this sort of suspicion that Bobby threw it just because of the way he played." And and then I got the archival uh, film of the broadcast, the actual ABC broadcast that Howard Cosell anchored, which was so much fun because the commercials were in it, you know, <laughs> right. and it was so much fun to watch. And when you watch it, it's amazing how Riggs 
on so many points appears to just be tanking. It's just there's nothing subtle about it. Yeah, it's He's like barely ball, the ball doesn't even go to the net. Balls it like hits before balls the net. don't go to the net. He's he is. Uh, I mean, th- th- this is a guy with just pinpoint accuracy on his serve. He's uh, faulting on nearly half of his first serves. There's several key points that he just badly makes bad bad mistakes to the point where Cosell is saying on the broadcast like you know why is that backhand why does Bobby Riz keep feeding that backhand to Billie Jean King I mean he he's openly questioning what Riggs is doing you know <laughs> as as you're watching the broadcast so uh there was enough there pretty or pretty quickly after listening to House Show's story that we decided the network got behind it to really just try to get to the bottom of it and um and and probably the breakthrough moment in the reporting was when I went to Illinois, Southern Illinois, to, and this is in July. I started on the story in May, so it was a couple of months into the reporting, to go um, talk to Lorne Kuehl, Riggs's best friend, and and Larry Riggs. And I had dinner with them at an Olive Garden. And uh, and during the course of the dinner, Larry Riggs, this is my first time speaking in, in meeting. I spoke to them on the phone, but it was the first time I met either one of them. Larry Riggs starts talking about these wise guys from Chicago that kept showing up <laughs> in the weeks leading up to the match. And um, it turned out they were associates of this guy, Jackie the Lackey Cerrone, uh, who was a mob leader from Chicago. Such who, a good nickname. Such a great nickname. And who, the more I dug, and, and Lorne, by the way, was sort of saying, oh, you're making it up, blah, blah, blah. And Larry's like, no, I'm not, Lorne. They, they were there. They kept coming. And I asked my dad about it. I never understood it. So uh, I didn't know that until he said it at the Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, was a breakthrough moment because the more I dug into the Jackie the Lackey Cerrone relationship with Bobby Riggs, there were a lot of connections there. Um, all the way up to the fact that after the match was over in 1973, the following year, Bobby Riggs got a job at the Tropicana uh, in Vegas, which was a Jackie the Lackey Cerrone connected, you know, mob. <laughs> they were skimming money out of the counting room, you know, which was uh, uh, the basis uh, for the film Casino. And uh, Cerrone ended up getting indicted for this, and uh, and and Riggs had this do nothing job for a hundred grand a year. He was just a greeter, and he had a house on the golf course. And so there were so many interesting connections. Um, I don't think I proved it. I know I didn't prove it definitively, but it certainly raises major questions about the veracity of the match. Of course, Billie Jean King hated the story. We interviewed her. She, yeah, there's this moment in the video version where the TV version where her mouth just. <laughs> drops. It drops because she she said that Bobby doesn't ha- hang around with mobsters. She just didn't believe it, and and then I had to say, well, yes, he did, and he re- he did a lot. Um, he had very deep ties to the mob. It's a wild it, amount of time that forty year gap, you know, because it's like so. This happened forty years ago, and it's this huge cultural moment, you know, uh, uh, thing. And and obviously, like there are people for whom Billie Jean King is one. Uh, it's still personally incredibly important they've got a whole sense of self a whole narrative about themselves tied up in the event Um, and yet at the same time it's far enough in the past that like uh, also nobody really gives a shit you you know what I mean (laughs) like like, it's so emotional for her but at the same time his son's like oh yeah of course yeah those mob guys showed up yeah yeah well it was also very emotional for Lorne Kuehl as well he he reacted with fury because I interviewed him on camera uh, in, in Illinois at his house um at actually the the day after that Olive Garden dinner that I described and he was he just thought it was BS and he was really really angry about it as well but 
But you know, I, I I interviewed so many people for that story. Um, a lot of Bobby Riggs's old gambling buddies uh, are still around. Guys in their seventies and and eighties, and and several of them just said, and they're quoted. One of them's quoted on the record in the story, but others just said, "Yeah, Bobby just sort of rolled his eyes, always kind of chuckled about it." Uh, and uh, what what was so amazing is that what Hal Shaw said he heard um, from those particular people. Um, it, it, it's not just how uncannily it happened, but the fact that who those guys were um, also had ties to Riggs and and would have benefited from it. And, and just in researching that part of the story was also fascinating because these guys were running The Wire. They were running the illegal like bookmaking, which actually did an incredible amount of business on the Battle of the Sexes. Um, and, and it turned out gambling experts were saying to me, that's the perfect fix. The perfect right. fix is if a guy who is a bookie knows the result of something, he can offer fatter odds to generate more money. And, and Plus when it's a staged, totally deregulated event. Totally deregulated event, kind of a and a, and a circus. I right. mean, it was it's a silly like, event. It was you know really kind of when you cra- think about it. Yeah, it's kind of like crazy. There were even there could be odds on such a thing. I know, right? Exactly. And on tennis, like who bets on tennis in 1973? Everybody <laughs> was betting on pro football and college football the way they do today. Yeah, I mean, doesn't tennis have all kinds of like betting scandals now? Oh yes, yeah, especially it's, through it's such an easy sport to throw. Yes, oh, there are many uh, through Betfair. Uh, you know, this online bookmaker right. in Britain. There's all sorts of issues with uh, with matches getting tanked now in tennis. You have a good epilogue to that story. The epilogue is that yes, I just within days of the story being published, right away I kept hearing from movie producers um, in Hollywood and also in the UK. I think maybe eight or nine different um, production companies or producers. Has that uh, not happened with a lot of your stuff? No, no, definitely, definitely not on a scale like this. It was pretty extraordinary. And uh, Peter Chernin, uh, a a filmmaker in Hollywood, bought the rights. Will Ferrell has signed on to co-produce it. It's going to be called Matchmaker, and they have a script already. And uh, hopefully soon they'll start making the movie. That'll be fun. Yeah. But Will Ferrell is not going to play Bobby Riggs. He's playing Bobby Riggs. He is. He is playing Bobby Riggs. He's <laughs> he's, awesome. he's, he's he's too tall. But you know, <laughs> if anybody can pull it off, Will Ferrell can. It's going to be. Pretty is it going to cool. be like? Is it going to be like? Um, you know, like based on the story, but there's going to be some. Uh, I think going to take some liberties, or is I, it like the true Don Van Natta tale? I think they're going to base it on the story. Yeah, very I think, tall Bobby Riggs. Yeah, yes, I think they're going to base it on our piece, and there's going to be mobsters in the in the film, and uh, it's going to be fun to see. That's awesome. It does seem like you enjoy you sort of blanketly you enjoy this work. Oh yeah, it seems like you have some fun doing it. I, I like do. you're on you're on Twitter and on Sundays you're tweeting out your favorite articles of the week. Like you're you're really into this stuff. I am. I, I do. I have a great time. I, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist, and uh, and wanted actually to be a sports writer. So when the opportunity came along, after 24 years of never writing about sports other than two books, uh, it was just like it was this great gift. And and I pinch myself every day. I have a lot of fun doing what I do. I really hope someday I can say something like uh, never doing anything other than those two books I wrote. <laughs> Well, you know, I but but I don't I know what, you I know no, but it scratched the itch. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like it was a way of to sort of write about sports separate from my day job, and and it was it was satisfying. And then, like I said, when that ESPN call came, I was surprised at how appealing it was. How quickly I got really really excited about the prospect of working for ESPN. I do want to talk to you about uh, your work at the New York Times. I mean, you covered the Clinton impeachment, post nine eleven CIA stuff. 
crazy things you read about? <laughs> uh, there's so much. I feel like we could do like three of these. But I am interested in that moment you're talking about when uh, you decided to leave the New York Times. Why? Why leave the New York Times? You got uh, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, it was like I said, it surprised me how easy the decision was. Um, I was very fortunate at the Times. They, they, they were incredibly nice to me from the moment I got there in 1995. Um, uh, I was a 30-year-old uh, journalist. I'd been at the Miami Herald for eight years. I was in New York. I went to Washington almost immediately and, as you say, covered an impeachment of a president. I couldn't find this story. Uh, it's like a personal thing you wrote about being in Hurricane Andrew. Yeah, I don't think it's online because I've been asked. You have to give it other... to us. Will you give it to us and we can put it? Oh, up? I would love. To, I would love to. Yeah, uh, I was in Hurricane Andrew in the eye of the storm in Florida City in a Comfort Inn motel, uh, and rode out the storm with uh, another half, a, another dozen or so guests of the hotel, and we were just lucky that a guy who was the hotel manager had been through a hurricane before and knew that the winds were going to shift and that we had to go from one side of the motel to the other. If we had not done that, we may not have survived because the entire side of the motel that we were on in the first half of the storm before the eye came got totally blown out on the second half with 165 mile an hour winds. And at one point I was holding up the bathroom ceiling with a couple of other guys, you know, saying my first prayer since Sunday school and uh, and wrote a first person story about it when it was over uh, on a Trash 80, these old Trash 80 computers. Um, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, Lizette Alvarez, who was a great uh, still New York Times correspondent, the Miami bureau chief, was also there. And she was the first reporter to actually be out on the ground interviewing people. She was there with you in the Comfort Inn? Yes. We were there together. We were sent by the Herald that'll together. Cement, that'll cement a bond. Yes, it absolutely did. We had been going out together about eight months at the time. <laughs> and, and we were married a couple of years later uh, in Miami in 1994. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, and Lizette did extraordinary work, um, you know, interviewing the sort of the first survivors, just coming out dazed out of their um totaled houses and she and must have been days too you you as well we absolutely were and then we and then after that first day and and doing that that those first stories we just for weeks were down there um every day covering the story for the herald uh and sleeping in a horse trailer uh that the that the herald rented uh the, you know that that was interesting on some <laughs> nights we were all just sort of bunked up together all of us glory days of newspapers it was glory days of newspapers it really was an extraordinary experience and it helped quite frankly, uh, getting the New York Times' attention because that work was part of a Pulitzer uh, for public service for the Miami Herald uh, that was awarded in 93. And then just a couple years later, um, Lizette and I were hired by the New York Times. Well, you'll have to give us that piece and we'll put it up and we'll uh, put it in the show notes. All right. So you get to the New York Times. You're, you're, a, you're a young man, 30 years old. You've survived a hurricane. New wife. Yes. And, uh, and I'm in Washington uh, covering impeachment. Then 9-11 happened. And when the plane hit the Pentagon, I, I was living, we were living, Lizette and I, uh, with our oldest daughter, Isabel, um, in Alexandria, Virginia. And we heard the plane hit the Pentagon from our house. Um, and uh, so, you know, we covered the aftermath of 9-11 in Washington. And then in 2003, the Times sent us to London. And I covered counterterrorism issues out of London and traveled around Europe and the Middle East for several years, which was, a, which was an incredible experience and very privileged to have been able to do that. And then came back to New York and just felt I didn't want to become an editor. And, and at a certain place in any New York Times correspondent's career, you can continue to do it or you can look for a new challenge. And so when that call came in late August of 2011 from Chad Millman, who is the uh, ESPN, the magazine's editor and also the editor now of uh, ESPN.com. He called me and said, would you be interested in coming to Bristol? I was surprised at how fast I said yes. And then when I got there, 
I was just blown away by the place because it's it's a Disney World if you're a sports fan. Just the campus in Bristol is, is incredible. And everybody I met, uh, as I said earlier, was so committed to doing great work. Um, and uh, and so it was it was a it was a really easy choice. It's, it was it's hard to leave the Times. I love the Times. I will always love it. But um, this was just a great opportunity. David Carr talks a lot about how his name is David Carr, New York Times. All right, David Carr, you know, media columnist, the New York Times, but that's attached to his name now. How is it different to go from Don Van Natta, New York Times, to Don Van Natta, ESPN? I, I have not found that there is any difference whatsoever. Uh, I'm covering sports. And so when you have ESPN after your name, when you're writing about any sports subject, that carries the same cachet that, you know, the New York Times carries in Washington. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been fortunate that way. Uh, I call folks, and for the most part, um, uh, they'll at least return my call, maybe to tell me like Roger Goodell did. To, you know, <laughs> that there's no interest to talk to me. But, but no, I, I, uh, I've not, I've not found that. How come you didn't want to be an editor? Well, I tried it in 2008. I was a player coach um, during the election year, and so I was writing investigative stories about the campaign, and I was also attending lots of meetings um, with other editors, um, helping shape the coverage, uh, our enterprise and investigative coverage um, during the presidential campaign, and I just found it you know, suffocating. Um, You're chained to a desk. And the Times is such a hierarchy. I had very little power um, to do things. Uh, And, and, you know, I was the low man on the totem pole. And and yet at the same time, it was was almost doing two jobs for the price of one because I was still writing stories as well uh, as a reporter. And I just, I just didn't like it. When you're the low man on the totem pole, do you ever just like, uh, like walk around with your three Pulitzers? That 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 doesn't really matter at the times, you know. Every uh, almost everybody has a Pulitzer, right? <laughs> you know. Either either that they won find, at the times like or these Pulitzers in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, either that they won at the times or that they won previously or both. Um, no, it it's just uh, it just was a frustrating year, and um, I remember Jill Abramson saying to me at the end of the election, you know, you're really not, you didn't really have fun, did you? I said no. I mean, it was it was obvious to everybody, and so I went back to being a reporter, but. Um, there were other opportunities. The Wall Street Journal offered me a sport, the, the sports columnist job, actually, in early 2009, and I was really tempted to do it, um, uh, but said no and, and, and stayed at the Times. And, and there were other opportunities I had, too, in, in the years after that, but it was the ESPN job just felt right, and I, and I haven't looked back. It's been just a great, great fun, great privilege. Well, where do you see yourself going from here? I mean, what, what kind of, uh, if you've got this kind of, like, not blank checkbook, but, like, pretty close to it, uh, you don't have a particular requirement for the kind of stories you need to produce or the number of stories you need to produce. Uh, what kind of work do you want to be doing? The same kind of stuff. Just waiting for people to come up to you and tell you that uh, <laughs> incredibly famous sporting <laughs> events were rigged? <laughs> no, I, you know, there, there's plenty to do in, in sports. Uh, it, it, it's such a wide open playing field. There are so many subjects that, that are worthy of deep dives. I mean, I love doing the stories behind the stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, and luckily, the, the public seems to respond to those stories um, when they're done, not just, not just by me, but by anybody, um, and not just in sports. Uh, so the opportunity to be able to do that in an area, a subject area that I have not done much of, it, it feels fresh. It feels new and, and exciting. And it feels like you've also found a way to not um, make it feel frivolous. Well, it's nice to say. Well, but I mean, not- I appreciate that. You know, that's the sort of knock on sports. Right? You right. go from covering, uh, you know, uh, the CIA and torture right. uh, to, you know, covering sports. Uh, it could feel pretty light. And yet you've kind of found yourself in the midst of 
the heaviest story the NFL has ever had. Right. And also Penn State. Uh, right. The first story I did right out um, of the box at the network was the Penn State scandal, and I, I worked a lot on that in my in my first year. Uh, and, you know, you could argue that was maybe the worst college football scandal of all time, certainly one of them. Do you think that uh, the, this work you're doing now on the NFL is going to change the kind of things you'll be able to cover going forward? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I hope not. Uh, I mean, I, I hope that... Um, you know, we, we, we cover this in a way that makes the network proud and whatever next scandal that occurs or whether it be FIFA uh, to investigate or, uh, you know, the rigging of tennis matches in Europe, whatever the network decides it wants to turn its attention to where they want some investigative muscle applied to it, I hope that they'll, you know, give us the opportunity to do it. Not just me, but my colleagues. Uh, and, you know, there's so much to do in sports um, in this area. And, and, you know, like I said, the network seems to value it. So hopefully we'll be able to continue to do it. Well, next time you do it, we'll have you back on. We'll talk about uh, what, whatever new scandal you've uh, unearthed. And I'll ask you about all that New York Times stuff. Sounds great. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Don. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to Don Van Natta for uh, taking some time out between his source meetings to come to Dumbo and do the podcast. Uh, that could have gone so much longer. That man has stories. He's got so many good stories. Uh, thank you, Don. Thanks also to our sponsors, Tiny Letter, uh, Bonobos, B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. Use the code LONGFORM at checkout. You get 20% off your first order. Uh, oh, and thanks to the Howler guys. Uh, they put the story up that we told you about last week, our contest with EA Sports to find your favorite uh, soccer articles. They put their winning article, which is this incredible story about a fan who got to play for West Ham United. Uh, they put it up for free online. Go check that out. And when you do, uh, check out their podcast, the Howler Podcast. Uh, they've got this great long interview with the fan. Uh, you will not be sorry. Okay. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.